Well, uh, if you're with us this morning, uh, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. If you have a Bible, you can go and op- open up to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be looking at the same passage we looked at last week. If you need a Bible, the elders w- or one of the ushers would love to put one in your hand. And uh, we're going to get going. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Christian. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Cornerstone. We have been spending the last year plus, almost a year and a half, in the book of Matthew Focusing on this idea of what does it mean to be apprentices of Jesus? Those who are not just called to learn about him or believe things about him, but to put into practice what we see in him, to follow his example. Last week, we were looking at the last part of um, Matthew chapter 20, and we'll start there again this morning. We will start reading in verse 20 of Matthew 20 through verse 28. So if you are able to, one more time, would you stand with me? And let's read this together, starting in Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before them, uh, before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. We talked last time. This isn't just about seating arrangement. She is seeking positions of power and authority and and prestige within Jesus' kingdom for her sons. But then in verse 22, Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them in this top-down, heavy-handed way. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord that we will look at this morning. You can take a seat. And as you do, Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you give us hearts to know and love and follow you as we look at your word that you've given us this morning? I ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, just again, to recap. James and John come with their mom. They're not just looking for special seats at a dinner or something. We're looking, they're looking for these positions of power and influence. And the way, again, that Jesus responds to them as he says, y'all don't know what you're asking for. Y'all don't know what you're asking me for. And then he, we looked at this last week. He explains in two different ways what it is that they don't know, what they don't understand. First off, you don't understand this cup I'm about to drink. This path of suffering and rejection and death that awaits me. And he says, are you going to follow me there? Yeah, sure, we'll do it. You're not able to yet. But through what Jesus will do for them, he will enable them to follow in that same path. But then the second way, especially we saw there in verses 24, he goes, you don't understand what you're asking for because you don't understand the way that power and authority work in my kingdom. He creates that contrast. Here's what you're used to seeing, this heavy-handed, top-down authority from the rulers of the nations around you. This sense of you serve me because I'm in charge. And he says, that's not the way it's gonna be with you. 
Instead, again, if you want to be great, he doesn't, not that he's saying don't desire greatness. He's saying if you want to be great in my kingdom, here's the way. Serve. If you want to be first, not just first as in you won the race, you get the big prize, but first as in the one to lead, to set the example for others to follow, be the slave. Take that low position. Seek greatness through service. Seek leadership through service. Why? Verse 28. Because that's the example that Jesus has set for us. Last week we looked at these different main points. And I just want to remind you of them because we are main points for this week as well. The big thing we learn here first is that true greatness in Jesus' kingdom comes through serving others. Not using power or size or strength or position to get others to serve us. The second big idea we saw was that true authority, use of authority in Jesus' kingdom causes those under our responsibility to flourish. It's a blessing. It doesn't use others to serve ourselves. But then the last thing we looked at again was this idea that to do this, to seek this kind of greatness, to learn how to use authority in this way does not come naturally to any of us. We must learn it from Jesus. And we must learn it among his people. That's what we ended looking at last week. This call that Jesus says about the way it's to be among us, the fellowship of believers. Now, last week, if you were here with us, you know, we gave out on the seats these blue cards that listed opportunities to serve within our church. And I asked you guys last week to take these and begin to pray through them. Lord, how would you have me serve and learn to serve among us? This week and next week, I'm gonna ask you all to begin to respond to that. If you've taken the time to do that, there's that QR code you can respond to. There's also gonna be some different ministry leaders of different ministries that'll be out in that side of the, this side of the lobby, the south side afterward. If you just have questions, what does it look like to serve in these different ways? But I mentioned again last week that I wanted to spend another Sunday in this passage because I think, again, what Jesus is saying here is so essential for us to start to wrap our minds around. It is one of those things we must learn. It's not optional. It's not just for those who aspire to be leaders, aspire to certain kinds of positions. I think this is a universal call among the disciples of Jesus to use whatever authority we may have to serve like Jesus did. That's the big idea we're gonna see here. We keep using this phrase about the upside down kingdom of Jesus. You remember hearing that? How the way that Jesus rules, the way his kingdom works is upside down backwards. It's different than what we're used to seeing. But what I want to show you today is that what we call Jesus' upside down kingdom is really the only kingdom that's right side up. That the, the, the vision of responsibility, of authority that Jesus is laying out for us here, it's actually the way that it was intended to work. This is the way that God intended authority, human authority to function in contrast to the way, the twisted ways we do it. Jesus is not just giving us another take, another spin, a fresh perspective on leadership. He's calling us back to the way that God intended it to be in the beginning. And I would say it all to me is encapsulated in that title that Jesus uses of himself in verse 28 when he calls himself the son of man. If you've been with us as we've gone through the book of Matthew, Jesus has used this title frequently. It's his most common way of referring to himself. Other people call him the Christ. They call him the son of David. Even demons call him the Holy One of God. But Jesus' favorite way to refer to himself is as this son of man. 
And it's a title that has rich Old Testament significance, particularly we're going to see in a few minutes from uh, the book of Daniel in chapter 7. And again, I think Jesus is using this title for himself throughout his ministry very specifically as a clue to his disciples, including us. View my ministry, view what I've come to do through the lens of this one that Daniel talked about, through the lens of the way that this whole theme of authority develops throughout the biblical story. So that's what I want to do in our time this morning. I want to kind of skip a rock across a few major passages throughout Scripture that bring to light the sense of authority that Jesus is talking about here, about here and helps us see again, he's got it right side up. We've got it twisted and backward and upside down. And what Jesus is calling us to is essential for all of us. So the first thing I want to do before we start jumping into a passage is maybe just um, define that term. Sometimes it's important to define terms, a term like authority or power. What do we mean by it? Now, there's a whole bunch that we could say, but maybe a good place to start is this. There's a guy named Andy Crouch, great uh, uh, Christian writer, scholar. He's written a couple of really good books on this whole idea of power and authority. One of them is called Playing God. And another one is called Strong and Weak. Strong and Weak's quite a bit shorter, so maybe that's a good one if you want to start with something a little bit shorter. But in that book, Strong and Weak, here's the way that Andy Crouch defines this idea of authority. He says that it is the capacity for meaningful action. Before we talk about titles, roles, um, certain positions, he just says authority is the ability to act in a meaningful way. Not just do things, but do things that mean something. Does that make sense? Let me build off that a little bit. I would say for pretty much all of us in this room, the first meaningful action that we learned how to do in our life, that we actually didn't even have to learn how to do, was to cry, right? If you have a newborn right now, you are well familiar that there is a meaningful action in a baby's cry, but what does it mean, right? Are they tired? because they're crying. They could also be hungry. They could also be sick. They could need to be changed. They could just be not happy right now, right? Same action, but what does it mean? And the authority, at least starting out, that new parents have to use is to figure out what does that action mean? So maybe for those of you guys who are parents, do you remember that, that moment when you started to go, oh, I can tell the difference now. That's a hungry cry. That's a I need to be changed cry. That's a you need to go nine-nine cry, right? You learn the meaning of that action. But very quickly, our role as parents begins to shift from using our authority to interpret our children's actions to helping them begin to interpret their own actions. How many of you guys ever said that when your kids were toddlers and they're fussing? You look up and you go, use your words, use your words. Rather than just making sounds, you will be able to communicate what you mean by what you're doing through using your words. And throughout the rest of that time of growing up, even those in positions of authority and responsibility over us, teachers, parents, coaches, and so forth, really the purpose of their authority was to entrust us with more, with more capacity for meaningful action. Some of it we understood. Like, okay, I get why you want to teach me how to read and write and things like that, but I don't understand the meaning of algebra or its meaningfulness in my life, right? Maybe some of you, you totally do. No, math is a language that's beautiful. But you see, there's this sense of even subjects we studied in school, even athletic skill and how to work on teams, they give us more capacity to act in a meaningful way in the world. Here at our church, 
We want to make sure that we are equipped with an understanding of God's word. This gives us the capacity for meaningful action. And the way that Jesus puts it here in Matthew 20, the kind of actions that mean the most are the actions that are done in service to others, not just ourselves. So let me say this for a second. If you're a young person in this room and you think about this idea of authority as something that other people, older people have, and you don't yet, I would say perhaps you have more than you think. You may not have a title or a role, but every day, if you have eyes to see it, you are being given more skills, more opportunities, more tools to enable you to work in a meaningful way in this world. So the question is not, do I have authority or not? It's what am I doing with what's been given to me? It's like that classic line from Spider-Man. With great power comes what? Great responsibility. With whatever power, whatever opportunity, skills you've been given, how are you using them to build others up, to tear them down, to just do what you want? Again, what Jesus is laying out for us here in Matthew 20, the most meaningful actions are those who are done in service to others, not ourselves, because these are the actions that reflect God's character, the way that God uses his power. He is the source of all rule and authority, right? It all comes from him. And if we want to know how to use it rightly, we should see how he uses it. So if you go back all the way to Genesis chapter 1, and we read about the way that God uses his power, his authority, his capacity for meaningful action, we watch him out of nothing create a world that is full of beauty and order and life. And we begin to see this pattern there of the way that God goes about using his power. The first thing we see there in Genesis 1, I won't read it, but you can see it highlighted up there on the screen. How does God create? He says something. God said, let there be light, and all of a sudden there was light. Only God has that power to create something out of nothing. But watch the way he continues. Not only does he say, not only does he speak, but then it says God saw. He saw that the light that he made was good. He not only creates, he evaluates what he made. As the source of all that is good, he is also the judge of what is good. And he says, what I just made, that is good. We see that pattern throughout Genesis 1. So God speaks, God sees, and then God names. Do you see that there in verse 5? God called the light day, the darkness he called night. He not only creates he evaluates, he assigns value to what he made. And not only value, identity. He gives a name to the things that he made. Andy Crouch, again, in one of his books, he talked about it. He, he sums up what we see God do in Genesis 1 in these two ways. Making stuff and making sense. He makes things and then he assigns significance, worth, value, identity to the things that he makes. You see that, that pattern there? And then when we come to the chief, the crowning achievement of God's creation, we see in verse 26, the same similar pattern where he says, I'm going to make something else. Let us make man, humans, in our image after our likeness. And let's create them for a very specific purpose, to exercise authority. You see that there in verse 26? Let them have dominion. Rule, authority over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, all the things that God had created earlier in that, that creation account. So God did it. He makes humans in his own image, male and female. He made us in our gendered realities. 
And he did it all so that we might have dominion over the rest of what God created. See, this is again why I would say that this whole idea of thinking well through authority and the example that Jesus sets for us is something we all must give attention to because if you are a human being, you were made in God's image to exercise authority over creation. That's what we were made for. That was God's intention for us in the beginning. But not only, here's the cool thing, not only does God say he creates humans to exercise authority. In the way that he continues to speak to them, he not only gives them instructions for how to use that authority, I would say God goes on to model it. Here, watch what I do. This is the pattern for you to follow. Watch this, verse 28. What's the first thing that God does with his authority toward these humans he made? He blesses them. What does God's rule, what does God's power look like? It looks like blessing. Not heavy-handed, top-down, do what I say. Blessing, flourishing life. Not only that, verse 29. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth. I've given you it for food. And not only for you, all those beasts and animals that I've given you authority to rule over, what they need for food, I've provided that as well. God's rule looks like blessing. It looks like providing all that is needed to meet our needs. And I would say the most important thing that God created, or provided for them was his word to guide them. These very words to guide them in the direction that they should go. Or even more specifically in Genesis 2, when God says to Adam, he says, all these trees I've made, I've given you. These are all for you. I've abundantly provided for your needs. These are all good, but this one over here is not good. This one tree that I'm telling you not to eat from, this is what will bring death. Do you trust me? Do you trust me that my word is good, that my rule brings blessing, that I've given you what you need? We see again here in, in, in the creation account, God is a good king who gives good gifts and good words to guide his people toward what is good. So I would say, I would sum it up like this. What does God's authority look like from here in Genesis 1? It looks like blessing. It looks like provision. It looks like his word to guide us. And so if he created humans to exercise authority, what should our authority look like? Well, it should look like extending that blessing to others. It should look like meeting others' needs out of what God has provided. It should look like using that authority according to God's word. Follow his example. Do what I do. Do you see that? But what did humans do with that authority? Did they follow God's example or did they want to do a little freestyling? Not just freestyling. If they were called to rule under God's word, under his good rule, because that's what would bring blessing and flourishing, those are the very things that the serpent comes in and starts to tweak with their thinking a little bit, right? Does God's rule really bring blessing? Has he really provided all that you need? Why wouldn't he let you eat from that one tree? Does he actually use his authority to bless you or to keep you under his control? Has he told you not to eat from that tree because he actually knows that is the key to make you become all that you could be? Is he actually holding you back? In other words, everything that the serpent does in Genesis 3 is he tempts people to believe that God uses his authority in all the twisted ways that we do. Every way in which we get it wrong and twisted, he says, is that what God is doing? But watch the way 
it's not just the words of the serpent. Watch the way that Eve herself responds to this. She knows what God has said. She knows what the serpent said. But look what happens here in verse 6. So when the woman saw that that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one tree that God said was not good to eat from, when the woman saw that it was good for food. Wait, do you see what's happening here? This is a very God-like perspective that she takes on for herself, right? Isn't this the same thing we saw God do back in chapter 1? God saw that the light that he made was good. He evaluates it as good. But he evaluated for Adam and Eve that this tree is not good. And so what is Eve doing? Looks good to me. I'll make the value judgment for myself. She sees it, looks good to me. And in making her own value judgment, she is rejecting God's value judgment. In making her own ruling on the goodness of the tree, she is rejecting God's rule. And what does she do? She takes it. I do think there's something significant there. God gave them everything that they needed, but she took what God forbade. She took the one thing that God forbid them to have. And then what does she do with it? She gives it to somebody else. She doesn't use her authority. She doesn't use her capacity for meaningful action to care for others out of what God had provided. She takes the one thing God said, don't have it, and shares it with somebody else. And Adam goes, sure. Yeah, it looks good to me too. And they both eat it, right? Do you see here how twisted and upside down this is? Because they rejected God's authority over them, their authority became twisted. We trust the voice of a serpent over the voice of God. We want to be our own authority, define good and evil on our own terms. I would say it looks kind of like this. If this is the way that humans were created to exercise their authority, well, what we see from Adam and Eve here is it all kind of gets twisted. So, yeah, we don't want to do that. And what God goes on to explain to them in the rest of Genesis 3 is instead of my, extending my blessing, cursed is the ground because of you. Your rule will not bring flourishing and peace and fullness to this world. Your bodies will get old and sick and die. You still are created to exercise authority over creation, but there's going to be a lot more obstacles. It's going to be harder. Creation itself will often work against. There will be thorns and thistles that will make your word uh, work harder. There will be droughts and plagues that will wipe out your work, right? This is not going to work well. And I would say this, because they rejected God's authority, they misused the authority he gave them, their whole relationship with authority itself and with each other got twisted and corrupted. Look what God goes on to say to the woman in Genesis 3, verse 16. Again, he first talks about the pain that she will experience in childbirth. But then at the end, look what she talks about, and look what he says. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband." but he shall rule over you. As a matter of fact, the, the Hebrew probably is better translated with like a power dynamic on both sides of the phrase. There's another English translation, that the Net Bible. They put it like this. You will want to control your husband and he will dominate you. Or there could also be like a, like a, like a will idea there too. It can be, you will want to control your husband and he will want to dominate you. Does this sound familiar to anybody? Marriage is hard, isn't it? It is a good gift from God, but our twistedness makes it hard. And even good marriages take a lot of hard work, don't they? 
But I don't think that what God is saying here just has to do with marriage and the, the way that marriage becomes a power struggle because of our corruption. Remember, he's speaking to Adam and Eve about their relationship as husband and wife, but Adam and Eve are also the totality of the human race at this point. So he's speaking not just the way that marriage becomes a power struggle, but the way, I guess you could say, all human relationships become a power struggle. Because one of the points, again, that Andy Claritz makes clear in his book, what we see here in Genesis 1, is that God's intention for authority is that it is something that is given, not taken. It is something that he entrusts, commissions. And in rejecting what God had entrusted to us, all we're left with is this tug-of-war, dog-eat-dog sort of what can I get for myself. It's a much more hollowed out and twisted idea. All relationships become power struggles to a certain extent. Do you see that in your life? Isn't this why group projects were such a drag in school? All right, who's going to call the shots? There's usually one person who wants to call every shot. There's usually at least one person who wants to call no shots and just hopes that everybody else does the work for him, right? Was that you? Maybe. Maybe there was the rest of us that just went, oh, it would be so much easier if I could just do this by myself. It is so hard to work with people, right? It's the reason why our favorite bands break up. Because for all of the creativity and beauty, they start to fight over who gets to decide what's going to be what. That's the reason why grossly overpaid athletes throw fits and refuse to play a child's game for millions and millions of dollars if they don't get what they want. It's the reason why the leaders of professional sports leagues will purposefully hide the way that that sport damages the bodies and brains of their athletes so they can keep making money off of them. This power struggle, this power dynamic is the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine almost two years ago. It's the reason why Hamas attacked Israel. It's the reason why the United States government forced the Cherokee Nation to walk the Trail of Tears almost 200 years ago. Because twisted people use power in twisted ways. They use authority in messed up ways. I would say you could sum up all of human history from Genesis 3 onward in this way. By rejecting God's authority and seeking to establish their own authority apart from God, Humans began to use authority in twisted ways which twisted them. Do you see that? Do you feel that in your heart? The problem is, we've still been created by God to exercise authority. We've still been created by God to exercise, to have dominion over the world that he made, to join him in making stuff and making sense out of the world. But again, corrupt people use authority, use their capacity for meaningful action in corrupt ways. This again is why we need a savior. You hear me? This is why we need a rescuer. This is why creation needs a savior. Someone who will rescue us from our own evil, the damage that it causes, who will rescue us from the twisted ways that we exercise authority, not just to get us off the hook, but to transform us so that we can do what God intended because he still intended us to exercise that sense of it. It's still our purpose as humans. Do you see that? This is why, again, I would say, 
Whether you feel like you're an authoritative person or not, we all have to think carefully about this. There's a passage in in the Old Testament, in in, in the book of Daniel I mentioned before. Let's go there now. Because this passage in Daniel chapter 7 illustrates the twistedness of human authority and also gives us a huge clue about what God will do to make things right. Again, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel is an Israelite young man who's living in exile in Babylon, and God communicates to him frequently through visions. And in Daniel chapter 7, there is this really remarkable vision that Daniel sees of this kind of succession of four great beasts that go across kind of his view. And he's told later on that these four beasts represent different human kingdoms, empires, But the crazy thing about these beasts that he sees is that they don't look like any of those animals that Adam and Eve spent time with in the Garden of Eden. They're twisted. They're corrupt. They're they're more like monsters. These Frankenstein combinations of different types of animals. Again, if you read Daniel on your own after this, the first beast that he sees there in chapter 7 is one that says it looks like a lion. So you can kind of tell it's kind of lion-like. But it's got wings and it walks on its two hind legs like a man. I've never seen that at the zoo. I've seen some weird things in the zoo. I've never seen that. Then he says, the next one looks like a bear. It's chewing on bones and some other other animal. It's eating everything in its path. Then the third one looks like a leopard with four wings and four heads. That's off. The last, the fourth beast, Daniel can't even describe it based upon any animal he's seen previously. He just says that it looks terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong. And it has a bunch of horns on its head and one of the horns could talk. This is a crazy dream, right? This is a crazy vision. What's the point of it? If these beasts represent human kingdoms, look at how twisted and distorted and beastly human rulers have become. Look how monstrous human authority looks compared to what God intended it for. This isn't what God intended. Corrupt people using power in corrupt ways. And again, it's really easy for us sometimes to say, yeah, those rulers, those kings, those politicians, those people in big business. And even though this vision focuses on kingdoms, It's talking about us too. Do you see that? That same twisted beastliness in your own life. In the way that you use your capacity for meaningful action. Think about the authority you've gained over the course of your life. For every new skill that you've gained, you've learned a way to mess it up. Like, okay, think about this. This uh, little supercomputer that we all carry around in our pockets now. Can do a zillion different things. It is a cool gift. It is a powerful gift. Sometimes too powerful for us to use well. We can use this in ways that are so helpful for life, for relationships, for communication. But man, we can get in trouble. We can cause trouble with these little devices, can't we? Every day I feel like we read headlines of people who ruined their lives through careless words that they posted through their phone. Or even if they didn't ruin their life or their reputation, they've ruined their consciences by the things that they just absentmindedly absorb and watch or even actively seek out. Whatever new tool or app or platform that that comes out on it, it doesn't take two seconds for people to find out a way to use it for evil, to twist it, to use it as a means to steal or to defraud or tear others down or just waste far too much time. 
We're all twisted by sin. And the more authority, the more skill, the more opportunities we have, we find ways to twist it, don't we? That's why we need to keep going in Daniel 7. Because even though he sees this parade of terrifying beasts, what happens ultimately is that last beast, the most terrifying, fearsome one, is brought before the Ancient of Days, this name that refers to God in that scene. He's brought before the throne of God and he is judged and destroyed. In that vision, Daniel is given this glimpse that God can and will put a stop to the corruption of human authority. He will put a stop to it. But that's not even the best part of the vision. What happens right after that fourth beast is destroyed? Check this out. This is in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7. Oh, the, the reference is wrong, but it should be verses 13 and 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. After this parade of monstrous beasts goes by, Daniel sees this one that he says, he looks like a son of man. He looks human. He looks like what God intended, not some beastly twisted monstrosity. He looks like what God intended. And he doesn't come to destroy and seize and take power for himself. He is given dominion and glory and a kingdom by God himself. He not only looks like what God intended, he rules like what God intended. So let me ask you a question. Who do you think this vision is talking about? Who do you think it's talking about? I think this is the very reason why Jesus in Matthew 28 and throughout the book of Matthew keeps calling himself the son of man. He's saying to his disciples and us, I'm that guy Daniel saw. The one who hasn't come to use power in twisted ways, but has come not to seize or take power or kick out the Romans and lead an army in victory. I have come to receive a kingdom from my father. I haven't come to rule like those beastly rulers of the Gentiles that you're used to seeing, which is why if you just take whatever idea of the use of power you see in the world around you and try to plug it into my kingdom, it's not gonna work. Don't bring that beastly monstrous kind of power into this thing. I'm the son of man. I've come to rule differently. Not only that, again, in that vision in Matthew 7, it says that all peoples and languages and nations will serve him, will serve this king. But yet what Jesus makes clear to us here in Matthew 28, why will all peoples and nations and languages ultimately serve Jesus? Because he will grind them to pulp under his heel? No, because he first came to serve us. Have you experienced that in your life? That sense where you realize, oh, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, you have absolute authority over me. But if I look at your character, I look at the way that you live, 
I'm not afraid of you having absolute authority over me because I see the way you use it. You use it to bring blessing and goodness and healing. In other words, Jesus uses power like God does. Again, if God's power looks like blessing and provision for our needs, but our corruption of that looks like actually bringing a curse instead and taking what we want for ourselves in rejection of what God has for us, well, Jesus comes and he says, this is what I'm telling you. It shall not be so among you. Don't bring that kind of power into my kingdom. Watch the way that I work. I work the way that God intended. Has that, is that not what we've seen in the example of Jesus over the last year plus as we've been going through the book of Matthew? The way that as he moves from town to town, whether or not he has acknowledged positions of authority in the eyes of the people, he uses his authority as the son of God to bless to serve, to bring healing, to provide for people's needs, to rescue them from demonic possession, all of that, he brings blessing. He rules according to God's word. Remember that, like even if you go back to Matthew 4 and Jesus' temptation, serpent comes in with his own words again, do this, do this, and Jesus says, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I will use my authority according to what my father has said, not what you say. In the Sermon on the Mount, he looked at his disciples and says, don't think that I came to get rid of everything that God said through the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its intention, to be what God intended humans to be. That's why he says at the end in Matthew 28, if you're one of my followers, go amongst all nations and make disciples by baptizing them, as we saw earlier, and by teaching them to observe everything I've said to pay attention to it, to practice it, to pass it on, because to live according to Jesus' word is to live according to God's word, amen? amen. Again, the point, I want you to see this. God, Jesus came to show us that God's intention for us as humans was always that we would use the authority that God has given us to serve others, not ourselves. Human history, our own lives, our own experience has shown us that any other way of using power other than the example of Jesus corrupts us, twists us, sets us upside down. It makes monsters out of those who wield power wrongly and it misuses those under that kind of power. Whether that's in government, whether that's in business, whether that's in our homes. But Jesus doesn't use power like that. Do you see that? He's a different kind of king. He's the right kind of king. His authority brings blessing and life. He came to break, break that beastly power over sin by giving himself as that ransom. And he is calling all of us, all of us, every person who hears me right now, he is calling all of us to come to him for that ransom, for that rescue, for that forgiveness. Not just to rescue us from something, but to rescue us for something that we might learn from him how to use our capacity for meaningful action like he does. Not to serve ourselves, but to serve others. Remember back in Matthew 11, when Jesus said, he says, come to me, come under my rule. I'll give you rest. That's what I wanna do with my power over you. Not weigh you down or grind you to a pulp, give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you Learn from me. 
That word yoke, like the, the weight of wood that would put over an oxen's backs in order to, to, to tie it to the cart or whatever it was pulling. It could be used metaphorically to refer to the teachings of a rabbi or to the rule of a king. And I think in Jesus' case, both are true. Take the yoke of my authority as king upon you and take my, the yoke of my teaching upon you. Learn from me. I'll show you how to do this. Not just to get rest from me, but to extend that to others by learning to use power like I do. Again, what we see in Jesus' example throughout the book of Matthew is not only the way that he serves us, but the way that he is training us to serve like he did. One of the biggest ways he serves us is by setting that example for us. It's like the old adage that we've often heard. If you give a man a fish, you feed him for how long? A day. If you teach a man a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. In other words, the better way to serve someone is to equip them with the skills so that they can do the same. Is that not what we see in Jesus as well? Yes, he alone is that ransom, that rescue, to rescue us from Satan and sin and death. But throughout his ministry, he is saying, here, come learn to fish with me. Come learn to fish with me. I'm not only here to serve you, I'm also here to teach you to serve. Do we see that? Does that shape the way that we seek to operate in our homes, in our workplaces, even here in the church? to serve others by training them and being trained ourselves for service. That's what Jesus does with his power. So let me try to wrap this up over the next couple of minutes with you. Again, let me go back to our main points here. To use power like this doesn't come naturally to any of us. It looks different in Jesus's kingdom. Greatness looks like service. Leadership looks like being the slave, taking the lowest position. It doesn't come naturally to any of us. We must learn it from Jesus. We must learn it among us. But let me ask you this, now our second week talking about this. Do you want this? Do you want it? Does Jesus' way of authority look beautiful and desirable to you? Even if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I ask you, does this look beautiful to you? Even if you're not sure what to do with him, do you see something desirable about the way that he talks about using power and authority? Does it seem good to you? Even freeing from the whole kind of turn the tables and every four years seize power and undo what the previous people did. And the only way of using power that we seem to know how to do is to dismantle what other people do and not do much constructive with it. Does Jesus' example of sacrificial service, of the one in the highest place taking the lowest place, does it look beautiful to you? Do you want it? Even if you're not sure if you believe it yet, do you want it? In the same way, have you also, on the other hand, encountered that beastliness in your own heart, that twistedness, those evil desires and impulses that you know are not right, but you want them? Have you been surprised in your own life by how quickly and intuitively you have known how to take even good things in your life and twist them, use them for your own purposes? The reality is no one had to teach you how to twist things. We're born into that twisted, corrupt family of Adam and Eve. It's where we all start. And that's why Jesus came to ransom us. Amen? 
each day, listen to me, if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the reality is still each day you are being entrusted with more capacity for meaningful action, more tools and skills and knowledge. So again, in the wise words of Stan Lee, with great power comes what? Great responsibility. You are responsible for what you do with what has been entrusted to you, including a message like this. You one day, you will stand before the God who is the head of all rule and authority and give an answer to him for how you used what was entrusted to you. Are you ready for that? Man, if you have not come to Jesus and seen him as your king, today is the day to bow your knee to Jesus. His authority brings blessing. It brings life. He is not here to chew you up and spit you out. He is here to bring you rest and teach you how to serve others like he did. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, again, last week we gave out these little blue cards. I forget I had one up here, but the little blue cards that listed out different uh, ministry opportunities among us as a church. I ask you to take time to pray through that. And I ask you to take time over this week and next to respond. You'll be able to do that. There's that QR code on that page that takes you to the, the volunteer link. There's more of those, page, of those papers. If you didn't get them, there's more out in the lobby. There's also ministry leaders that will be out in that side of the lobby that you can come and talk to afterward. If you're kind of going, man, I want, to get, I want to build this discipline of serving among us. What's it like in children's ministry, student ministry, hospitality, different things like that? Come talk to them. But I would just ask you, please, Take time this week and next as we move especially into 2024. Service among us is essential to the way that we learn to use the authority that God's given us like Jesus did. Let me give you one last thing I want to talk about before we wrap this up. Again, in Matthew 28, we see this idea that Jesus came to ransom us. He came to be that price paid to rescue us from slavery to Satan's sin and death. There's another passage in the book of Revelation that uses this same idea of ransom. It uses a different word, but same concept of being purchased and rescued out of something. In Revelation chapter five, there's another vision, kind of like the one that Daniel saw, this time given to John, one of the disciples. One of the two disciples, coincidentally enough, who came asking for positions of power and authority. Later on, he's given this vision of Jesus. And in this vision, Jesus is pictured as a lamb that is bloody and cut up because it's been slain and yet it's alive. Some of us are familiar with this scene. It's very clear. This is talking about Jesus, the one who died and rose again. And in this vision, this lamb is given a scroll with all these seals on it. The scroll basically represents all of everything that God will do to bring history to its intended conclusion. And this scroll is given to this lamb because he is the only one found in all of the universe who is worthy to open it and bring history to its conclusion. And when this lamb representing Jesus is given this scroll representing the authority to bring all of history to its conclusion, a song breaks out in heaven. The beings around God's throne all begin to praise this lamb. And here's what they say. They sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, to bring all of history to its conclusion because you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God. I love in this song, it doesn't just talk about what Jesus ransomed us from, but what he ransomed us for. What did he rescue us for? For God, to belong to him, to live with him, 
to serve him even as we serve one another. We were ransomed for God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. We were ransomed to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Both terms that refer to authority. Kingdom, those under the rule of a king. Priests, those with the responsibility to represent God to the people. That's what you were saved for. Not just to go to heaven when you die, though that is true and still not the end of the story. You were ransomed to represent God as part of his kingdom. Not only that, I love that last part that I put in bold. What in this song does it say that the people of Jesus will be doing? They will reign on the earth. They will rule. They will exercise authority. Do you see why this is something that we must think about? It's not optional. We must wrap our minds and our hearts and our hands around learning to follow Jesus' example of authority used to serve. Because that's our destiny. I don't mean that in some like mumbo jumbo kind of way. What God intends for us, his intention for us from the beginning is to have dominion, to make stuff and make sense along with them over the world that he made. Jesus shows us what the redemption of that authority looks like. And when we are fully redeemed, when a creation is fully redeemed, when all trace of sin and twistedness and curse is gone, what will we be doing with God forever? Using our capacity for meaningful action to work with him and bringing blessing to the world that he made. This is our destiny. This is why we must wrap our head around it. This is again why we've been emphasizing this idea of apprenticing with Jesus, being trained by him to do what he does. Jesus is a king who leads by serving and he has called us to do the same thing. It starts here among us. Are you willing and ready to begin to follow the example of Jesus right here among us? Would you pray with me? (sighs) Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your example. Again, thank you that you haven't left us just to follow your example. You empower us. You ransom us. You rescue us so that we might be with you and be like you. Lord, would you impress upon our hearts the necessity of this? Even if power seems like a desirable concept or a scary concept or something we just leave to other people to worry about, you have created us in your image to exercise authority. You've given us so many skills and tools and resources and we are responsible to you for what we do with them. Would you drive it in our hearts to seek to be faithful, to seek to be honest, to come to you, to come to one another and go, I don't know the first thing about doing this as a husband, as a parent, as a part of this church, but let's learn. Let's learn from you. Thank you for your example, Jesus. Would you lead us to follow your example? You are the worthy one. Amen.